we as a group of people firmly believe that the Word of God is a treasure. It is worth more than all the silver and gold in the world. And we are here today to study from it and to benefit from its teachings. And I hope that when we leave together today, that when we separate from being together, that we will look at our time together as beneficial in service to our God, but also that it will be that which God is pleased with. And I trust that he's pleased with our worship, with our songs, and with the good things that we've been able to talk about today. I invite you to open your Bibles if you'd like to follow along. That's the book that we always study from. That's the book that we will always study from, to the Gospel of John, the fourth book in the New Testament. We're going to spend a lot of time in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at about four verses here in just a moment or two, and glad to have you here. As was mentioned by Brother Daniel, we are very privileged to have lots of visitors with us, people from the community, individuals who are traveling and who are visiting in this part of of the country. Whatever your reason is, we're glad that you are here. We always say that you are our honored guest because we are so grateful that you've chosen to be here. There are a lot of things that you could be doing on a Sunday morning, sleeping in, uh, catching the early games that are happening maybe, uh, catching up on some housework or yard work, but you've chosen to be here, and we are grateful for that. I'd like to talk about, as Brother David highlighted a few moments ago, and I appreciate David picking out some songs that help us to understand the concept of the Holy Spirit, but to talk specifically about the Holy Spirit and the conviction of sin. By way of introduction, and we're going to use John 16, obviously, as our text there, uh, there are a lot of things about the Holy Spirit that might remain shrouded in mystery to us. I have a friend who preaches in the southern part of Texas, uh, who a number of years ago did a series of about seven or eight sermons just on the Holy Spirit, and we didn't even cover everything on the subject of the Holy Spirit and what he does, did, and will continue to do for a long time coming. So there's so much to say about this subject, and we ought not be afraid of it. This is not so much a, a, a sermon on the Holy Spirit, but rather about this particular passage here in John chapter 16, beginning in verse Eight. We'll read those four verses here in just a moment. We have a number of people who are here this morning that are very astute Bible students, and you know your Bibles backwards and forwards. And we also have people here this morning who may not be as familiar with the Bible. When I say John, you say John who? <laughs> and that's okay too. Whether you are well-versed in Bible study or this is brand new to you, we're glad that you're here and we hope that we can grow together. And so we're going to use this sermon as kind of a twofold. Uh, perspective or twofold goal, one being we want to look at the text and understand what John is telling us, the author of the book, as Jesus is the speaker here. But I also want to use this as an opportunity to take what is sometimes a foreign language, Bible talk and spiritual talk, and make it a little bit simpler or easier to understand and to make the message as clear as possible. So read with me if you would. I want to actually go back to verse 7 of John chapter 16. And Jesus here is in the final hours of his life. 
even though the gospel of John will continue for another five chapters, you know, or maybe you don't, that the gospel of John is tilted largely towards the last section of Jesus' life, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three books of the New Testament, are tilted towards a more global view of Jesus' life. And so in John chapter 16 and verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Jesus doesn't ever not tell us the truth, but he tells us the truth here. He says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So you would say, wait a minute now, Jesus is saying he's leaving, and if you're one of the earliest disciples of Jesus, where are you going? You're only 30-some years old, and the average life expectancy some 2,000 years ago was more than 30 or 33 years old. Where are you going to go? Where are you leaving us? They were very slow to accept the notion that Jesus was going to set his face towards Jerusalem, and there he was going to go and die. He was going to lay down his life, as Brother Matt talked about, Nicely in Luke chapters 22 and following just a few moments or so ago. Well, there in verse 8, when he, the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, he goes by a number of different names. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. That is a text that is formidable, that is fundamental, and that is functional in our lives as Christians. And it could be that it's a little bit confusing what was just said in that text. We want to clear up that confusion today as much as possible. And I want us to start with looking at the context in which Jesus is making these particular statements. If you go back to John chapter 14, if you just want to jot these things down, you're welcome to. As always, you can go to our website and find these sermons. And I'm also happy to give you any of my material for those of you that I may go a little bit too fast for. But in John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus has said, I'm leaving. I go to prepare a place for you, he would famously say. And then two chapters earlier from John chapter 16, Jesus has promised a helper, someone that's going to come and assist once he leaves. Jesus understands that the earliest followers, as well as those of us who live some 2,000 years later, would be kind of lost without him. And they would need some assistance And in fact, that assistance would come by way of the helper, or some versions use the term comforter. Jesus, in John chapter 15, which is just a page earlier in my Bible, in verse 7, says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done to you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. You see there where Jesus is starting to make this particular connection. Then in John chapter 15, verse 26, a verse that you may want to circle or put a a star next to, or as one uh, teacher used to say, prick your finger and put a drop of blood right there because that's important. Verse 26 says, when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify 
of me. There in John 15, verse 26. And then Jesus returns to his pending departure there in John chapter 16, verses 5, 6, and 7, where we began our reading just a couple of moments ago. It is then and only then that verse 8 comes into play where it says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Those three things that Brother David began us with in our study this morning or in our Bible study uh, and worship period today. That word convict, by the way, is the idea of literally putting something to shame. How is it that the Holy Spirit is going to put to shame the world of sin, the world of righteousness, and that of judgment? I want us to make three observations today by using this text as our outline. And I want us to start with this idea of those that don't believe Jesus Christ. We live in a, in a free country, and we live in a world wherein we have free will to choose what we want to believe. We want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, but no one's going to force you to believe that. And if you leave this morning saying, I don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, I'm not convicted of that. Nothing bad's going to happen to you, perhaps in this life. Now, in the afterlife, there are some serious consequences for not believing that Jesus is the Christ. But you'll go home and you'll go back to your jobs tomorrow and you won't even see a difference, perhaps, in your life. I say perhaps because, generally speaking, once you become a child of God, things seem to look up. Even when death is around you and illness surrounds you and difficult days uh, are around you, being a Christian makes all the difference in the world, in your perspective in life. Jesus' words were the evidence of the definitive truth, which is what it goes back to in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Go back just a couple of pages in your Bibles or log on to your digital Bible if you're choosing to do that and go back to John chapter 12. And I want to read verses 47, 48, and 49 very quickly. And I think you'll see what I'm talking about here. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I don't judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, that, by the way, is ripe for misinterpretation. That's beyond the time and scope of our study together today. But let's proceed further to 48. He who rejects me, Jesus says, you reject me and you don't receive my words, has already something that judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, to those of you that hear my voice, to those of you that hear the words of my inspired writers, the apostles and others who write what we will call the Bible, you have this word. This is what's going to judge you. Someone once said that the day of judgment, when that test transpires, it'll be an open book test. And this book will be opened. And you and I will have complete access to everything that is in this book on the day of judgment. Such that when we hear the wrong that we have done or the right that we have pursued, it will be outlined in the open book, God's word. 
This is what judges us. Someone once said, well, you Christians, you members of the church, you sure read the Bible a lot, and you sure make reference to the Bible a lot, and you sure talk about the Bible a lot, and you just are constantly talking about the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. We sing songs, give me the Bible. We have a children's song, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me, right? Why do, and uh, extra bonus for me singing today, uh, why do we talk about the Bible so much? Because it's what's going to judge us. And we've got to make sure that we know it. And even when it is not easy to obey, we have to follow its followings. Remember that the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to reveal God's word. As outlined in places like 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, where Peter would say on a couple of occasions in his two different epistles that gospel writers, that individuals that wrote, were writing as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So notice what it is that Jesus concludes here in our major anchor text of John chapter 16 and in verse 9. He says, it is going to convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. There is a direct connection between believing in Jesus and having sin wiped away. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are stuck with your sin and there's nothing that can be done about it. Let me, re- let me restate that so you understand what I'm saying. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are stuck with your sin and there's nothing that can be done about it. You are in a hopeless state. And I understand that's not an optimistic message, except it is an optimistic message because it re- it. it, it proposes you and forces you into thinking, I need to make a change in my life. A person who has been uh, presented with the truth or who has access to the truth and fails to believe in Jesus is guilty of sin. No if, no ands, no buts. And this reminds me of a number of passages in the New Testament. Your mind may have already gone to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, which incidentally, in all uh, truthfulness, uh, used to be a verse that scared me greatly. It still scares me, uh, but it doesn't scare me as much as when I didn't understand what the Hebrew writer was saying. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 says, If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. There it is, knowledge and truth. If we sin willfully after we already know what's right and wrong, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's a very frightening concept. That there's no sacrifice for your sin if you fail to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Those that don't believe in the Christ are those that are doomed to an eternity in hell. That is not a popular message to teach. But guess where it comes from? It comes from God's word. It comes from the Bible. Now, we are a people who are filled with hope because of our belief in Jesus and because of the fact that we understand him to be the Christ. Go back in the Gospel of John to chapter 8 to verse 24 to a verse that is quoted quite often by preachers and others. So we're sticking here in the book of John, just going back maybe five or six pages here. He says, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe, there's the word, if you don't believe that I am the one or he, you will die in your sins. 
Incidentally, that's why every person who I've ever baptized, I've ever seen baptized, or ever heard of being baptized, is asked a question that goes along the lines of, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that he is the Son of God? Why do we ask that question? Is it just to check the box and get the prerequisites out of the way? Or is it to establish, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ such that now being baptized will forgive you of your sins? You see, if, if someone says, well, no, I don't believe. Okay, that's fine. I'm going to baptize you anyway. It's just getting you wet. Nothing good is happening. And in fact, great ill is probably transpiring because of that. In verse 9 of our anchor text, John chapter 16, Jesus seems to me to be simply reiterating this particular fact. And given that the purpose and the priority of the Holy Spirit is to reveal God's word, a failure to heed the Holy Spirit is a failure to believe in Jesus the Christ. The Holy Spirit comes in part to give us this word. And when I say, I'm not going to believe what I read here, I'm saying, I don't believe Jesus. Don't believe the Spirit. Don't believe Jesus. While they're separate, they are one and the same in their message and in their deliverance. And so it seems to me that in New Testament times, this meant an incredible need to listen to the inspired men, John, and Peter, and James, and others, and Paul, and in our time, this means there's a need to listen to the inspired men's writings. Where do we find the inspired men's writings? It's in the Bible. And that's why we read the Bible so much. And that's why we want to be known as students of the word. Because this book contains everything that pertains, as Peter would say, to life and godliness. Let me suggest you a second thing that I, it seems to me that Jesus is really highlighting here in this particular text. And that's the notion of the importance of being righteous even without the presence of Christ. It is one thing to be diligent in your work when your boss is around or when your supervisor is supervising. But... The Bible actually talks about that by saying, don't be men pleasers. Don't just do your job when someone is watching you. Do it when no one knows about it. And that's true in our employment, but it's also true in our lives as Christians. Matthew chapter 6 is a text that we talked about briefly in our college study a couple of days ago. And the point that we made is that Jesus said don't be concerned with other people knowing the good that you've done or the generosity that you've shown or the kindness that you've exhibited. And don't advertise it. Don't blow a trumpet. Don't bang a cymbal. Don't say, hello, everyone. I'm about to do something good. And then go do it. Just do it. And if no one ever knows about it, God says, I know about it and I will reward you openly. In the lifetime of Christ... During his life, people were able to witness him and to see his righteousness. And in doing so, in his presence, there was a real push and desire to be obedient to him. Jesus is here. I want to serve him. The master is here. I want to please him.
We won't take the time to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6, but in those three or four verses, we see witnesses of Jesus, hundreds of individuals who saw Jesus not just in his own lifetime, uh, in the 30-some years he lived, but even after he was raised from the dead, as recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or in John's epistle. Now, you say, wait a minute, I thought we were already in the book of John. Now, John writes the book of John, but he also writes the books of 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. And don't get too confused, he also writes a book called Revelation. So it can be a little bit confusing, and we're trying to make sense of all this. But in one of his letters in 1st John chapter 2 and verse 6, John, the same one who is hearing and recording these words of Jesus about the Holy Spirit, says, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So what's the lesson for us? Simple. In the absence of Christ, and that's us today. You say, well, wait a minute, Christ is still here. I understand that. I'm, I'm saying in a literal sense, Jesus is no longer on this earth, walking around, teaching, performing miracles. So you now you understand what I'm saying. How are we to know how he walked in order to be righteous? Now, the people who lived 2,000 years ago, they had the privilege of seeing Jesus up front. And so they could mimic his ways. They say, well, he was kind, I'll be kind. He was forgiving, I'll be forgiving, on and on and on. But what about us? We don't have that luxury, or do we? We don't have Jesus walking along with us in that sense, but we have the word which was delivered by the Holy Spirit. This is an aside to what I had planned to talk about today, but sometimes you'll hear individuals say, you know, if I would have lived in the time of Jesus, I might have believed had I seen those miracles. You know, if I could just see a miracle today, if I could just see uh, someone being brought back to life who was clearly dead. The people in the first century did not believe when they saw, and there's no reason to believe that people in the 21st century would be any different. And as a result of that, we are not less privileged than first century disciples. And in fact, in the Gospel of John, very late, Jesus actually says, you've done a good job, those of you that have been in my midst and in my circle of friends, but more blessed are those who will never see me and yet believe. Who's he talking about? He's talking about us, is he not? We are very fortunate in that we have the word. And the Holy Spirit provides us with scripture that paints a perfect picture of the righteousness of Christ through so many different ways. He says a righteousness in verse 10 because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Let me suggest to you three just subpoints here very quickly. Number one is this we do so through his perfect teachings. The introduction, for example, of parables back in Matthew chapter 13 was designed to fully express the Lord's will. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, remember what parables were? And what parables are, because there's still parables today, none new in the New Testament, but a parable is a story that is taught to give some deeper spiritual application or meaning. 
And there's lots of different ways to provide a definition to what we mean by a parable. But back in Matthew chapter 13, there's the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower. We have the parable of the mustard seed. We have the parable of the all kinds of different things as outlined by Jesus himself because he was and is the master teacher. He's the best teacher who's ever been around. And he was great at being able to get his message across. So Jesus teaches us about righteousness even without his presence because of his teachings. But secondly, through what I would call his incredible compassion. To be compassionate truly is a divine quality. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that God was compassionate and God is compassionate. The term compassion is one of my favorites. And we talked about this in our college study just a couple of days ago. And, and what compassion means. And it's the idea of understanding and empathy. And willingness to put yourself in the place of the person who is otherwise suffering. It is a term that is used some 50 times in the Bible. Go through, for example, the book of Matthew or Luke, two of the Gospels, and count how many times the word compassion is used just in those two relatively short books, and you'll find 10 of those that are directly tied to Jesus and his compassion. On and on and on we see where Jesus is said to have compassion and he healed them, have compassion and he fed them, have compassion and he gave them something to eat, had compassion and he provided why did he do that? Because he loved us. And that's the love that we are to share with others. So we see the righteousness of God, even without his presence, through his teachings, through his compassion, and thirdly, through his complete submission to the Father. Uh, I, I will be very truthful. Brother Creech did not have reference to my notes in picking out his songs prior to today. And Brother Matt did not have access, but Luke chapter 22 is, it seems to me, a perfect passage where Jesus seems to embody this attitude in the hours before the cross. And what does he do? He kneels, he prays, he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done and not my own. And even on the cross, this was key to the mindset of Jesus. As outlined in chapter 19, verse 28 of the text as well. Let me suggest to you a third and final observation before we close out today. And that is there's something to be said about judgment regarding Satan. Go back to John chapter 16 and read with me verse 8 and then verse 11. We're going to skip those two verses because what happens is it seems to me, if you'd like to outline the text, that verse 8 is a summation or a preview of what's to happen in the next three verses. In verse 8, it says, when he is come, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Three separate things. And so he Jesus outlines that, first of all, in verse 9, secondly in verse 10, and his third point is verse 11. Uh, so Jesus is the master teacher, and that doesn't mean you have to always teach with three points, but we've done three today to mimic that. And this third and final point comes from verse 11. Uh, 
of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Who is the ruler of the world? Well, there may be some ambiguity to it, and there may be some debate, and there may even be some healthy disagreement among those who are present today, but it seems to me that it is largely agreed to that the focus here is on the ruler of the world, and that is of Satan. You say, well, I thought God is the ruler. Well, he is, but remember what happened in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Remember what is written there in, in the gospel of Luke uh, back in the previous book? It says... I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And in John chapter 12 and verse 31, there's a statement that is made. It is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So obviously God is not saying I'm going to cast out myself there. And so what seems to be happening here is as Ephesians chapter 2 verse talks about is the prince of the power of the air. We're talking, it seems, to me about Satan, about the devil. Incidentally, Satan is not a boogeyman that has been made up just to make us behave. He is real. He is formative. He is powerful. He's, he's authentically ugly in every sense of the word. And I don't mean that lightly or jokingly, but he's an ugly character. You say, well, yeah, he's ugly because I've seen pictures of him on the internet. <laughs> well, we don't know what Satan looks like, right? But he's ugly in his personality. He wants to destroy you. He wants you to go to hell. He wants your family to go to hell. He wants you to disobey the Lord himself. Let me suggest to you in closing four key points. Number one is this. Remember, the context of John 16 is the coming of the Holy Spirit in that it's going to be necessary for the coming of Satan. They say, well, Satan's already been there. He's been there all the way back since Genesis chapters 2 and 3, and that's true. But in John chapter 14 and verse 30, he says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. What's Jesus saying to them? And what is he saying to us? He's saying, get ready. After all, Paul says, I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. We are defensive players. Now, we, we play offense too. We have our sword. We have our weapons. We are about the business of using the sword to cut through hearts and to prick them. But we are also to defend the gospel who are we defending it against? Those of the world and those who are associated with Satan. All of us, whether we like to admit it or not, have been on Satan's side at some point. When we've been disobedient to our Lord, we weren't on his side. And we were separated from him as outlined in Isaiah chapter 59. Let me suggest to you a second point here about Satan in this final observation, and that is Satan has a certain what I would call allotment of power. Remember the story of Job, or as Brother Roger nicely read for us from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, this stake in the flesh or thorn in the flesh. The point being is that when you become a Christian, God doesn't say, congratulations, I am now going to put you in a Satan-free zone. And no bad will ever happen to you. 
In fact, much the opposite happens in that once we proclaim Jesus as Lord, Master, Christ, and Savior in baptism, we will be hated, Matthew chapter 10, by the world, and we will try, uh, and Satan will do everything we can to destroy us. I've often said, and it's a frightening thing to consider, that if you're not a Christian, you are not really on Satan's radar, except maybe in a passive sense. I don't want to get in the mind of Satan for a couple of reasons, but uh, in the sense that uh, you're not doing what's right in the first place, just keep on keeping on. You make my life easy, Satan says. But once you say, you know what, Satan, you are my enemy, and I hope you, as our children would also say, and I won't sing the song, I hope you sit on a tack. Some, some of our children know that song, right? Um, but we don't want Satan in our lives. We don't want him to have influence over us. Now Satan says, whoa, those are fighting words. I'm ready to fight you over that one. And he makes you his target. Satan's power, however, is limited. And it is limited, it seems to me very clearly, by the power of Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew chapter 25, in the first of the four Gospels, this is the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, depart from me, you who are cursed. This is where Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen to those who are not faithful to him. Depart, you're cursed. Go into everlasting fire, who is, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. And remember, fourthly and finally, the application for us. And that is, if Satan is to be judged. And there's a couple of ways of looking about that. One is in an eternal sense when he is removed totally and he spends all of his eternity in hell along with those who are unrighteous and his angels. But also in a more temporal sense, you and I are in the business of judging as well by saying, you know what? He's not doing correct. He's doing wrong. I don't want to be involved in that. And so I refuse to act as I've done in the past. I'm not going to use that language. I'm not going to go to that place. I'm not going to engage in that kind of behavior. Whatever it is that has to be changed or altered. If Satan is to be judged, so will all those who align themselves with Satan. That's frightening. So when we get to the day of judgment, it seems to me that I don't know what what aspect Satan's going to play in terms of his presence or lack thereof. It doesn't matter to me. But let's pretend you've got Satan over here and you've got Christ over here. Who are you going to flee to? I know where I'm going. I'm going to stand behind him, Christ, my Lord. And I'm going to do that not just on the day of judgment, because if I choose to do it only, then it's too late. I'm going to choose to do that in my life, whether I live for 25 years or I live for 100 years. However long I live, I want to dedicate myself to Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit seems to be suggesting, and that's what the Holy Spirit is helping us understand, and that seems to me what Jesus is outlining in this particular text. I began by talking about the fact that there are likely those here who are very good Bible students, and this in some ways was a review, and that's okay. We need to review these things. At the same time, there may be some who are here who are brand new to the Bible, 
and or who are still learning you're in your, your infancy in Bible study, and that's okay as well. But we want to help you to grow not just in Bible study in an academic setting where you say, well, I know more about the Bible. I was talking with someone just yesterday and uh, was asking about people that read the Bible and have read it 20 or 30 times. I know of people who have read the Bible 20 or 30 times, but they aren't living it out. And that's what we don't want. Nothing wrong with reading the Bible 20 times in your lifetime. Congratulations to you. But make sure that you live it out and apply it in everyday life. And we hope that we can help you. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And we are asking for you, if you are not a child of God or you are having been baptized at some point in the past and you need to make some sort of correction, we'd be glad to help you. And we stand ready to study with you. When I say we, I mean me, David, our elders, our deacons, our Bible class teachers. We have a lot of people who would be happy to study with you at your convenience. And answer your questions. Because no question about spiritual or biblical things is unimportant. And that is a message from the Holy Spirit, the Bible. And I hope that it's helpful to you today and always. If we can help you to do what is right, let us know while together we stand and while we sing.